As a sophomore in high school in the 1970s, a young black man tried out for the varsity basketball team in Wilmington, North Carolina. He wasn't particularly gifted at the sport and at 5 foot 11 inches lacked the size to compete. As a result, he failed to make the team. His parents were intensely hardworking and working class people. They came from humble means. His mother worked at a bank and his father was an equipment supervisor. His older brother was incredibly skilled at basketball and in turn received their father's glowing praise and dedicated attention. The young man's mother encouraged him, despite being cut from the team, to keep working hard over the summer if it was something he really wanted to do. She told him that if he wanted it and if he worked hard enough at it, he could make the team the next year. He would go on to make the varsity roster after putting in countless hours of practice and dribbling and shooting. Not only did he make the team, he would become elite. He was a top recruit who would go on to play for North Carolina basketball in the Tar Heels under Dean Smith. He would win ACC Freshman of the Year and he would become All-American and the Wooden and Naismith College Player of the Year Award, which he won two times. He would leave for the NBA after his junior year, and he would get drafted by the Chicago Bulls in the first round. In 15 seasons with the team, he would lead his team in number of points, categories, and other things, and he would lead the team to six NBA championships, five MVP awards, and would become the greatest basketball player of all time. That player's name? Well, it's of course Michael Jordan. While everyone virtually recognizes Michael's basketball legacy, few understand what really drove him to such competitive greatness. In ESPN's Last Dance docuseries, we get a glimpse into Michael's drive. He was a blast furnace for other players, right? Very difficult to play with and work with because he was so demanding. He demanded the very best from everyone at every single moment. In every practice, every game, there was relentless focus, there was drive, there was execution. You can see in the docu-series that Michael is continually yelling at other players to pick it up. He's, he's hard on them when they fail to execute the play as they're supposed to. Now, Roy Williams was an assistant coach under Dean Smith at the time, and he, along with many others, would say that Michael was committed to being the hardest working player at UNC. Williams, again, like the others, said that Michael really did live up to that goal. So we asked the question again, what was his motivation? Well, in episode two of the docu-series, Michael says his passion and drive came from an early childhood desire to please his father. Michael's older brother, Larry, was smart and capable, but Michael lagged far behind. Jordan's father, James Sr., even recounts a story in episode two about how Michael's brother Larry would help with tools, help around the yard, and he would excel. He'd ask for him to hand you a tool and he'd get the right one every time. James tells the story of Michael, though, helping with tools and projects around the house. He said, if you ask Michael for a wrench, he might hand you a pair of garden shears. The father chuckling, and this is kind of disturbing to me at least a little bit, the father's chuckling and he recalls how he would tell Michael to go back inside 
because he had done the task wrong. He said, go back inside, be with your mother. You're never going to amount to anything. And the father's kind of laughing at this point. Then it cuts back to Michael. And he says at this point in the docuseries, he longed for his father's approval. He saw how Larry was good at basketball. He saw how his father showed pleasure and joy in Larry. And so Michael reasoned that he could earn favor with his father. He could gain his father's attention by working to become better at the sport than his older brother. So what drove Michael to such levels of elite greatness? It was ultimately his father hunger. Unfortunately, that same father hunger that led Michael to greatness, at least in the category of basketball, is the same father hunger that is ripping our nation apart. It's destroying generations of men and their fathers. As young men and women are left to long for fatherhood in our country, and yet they find only absence. They find criticism, coldness, or worse, abusive language and behavior. So in today's episode, I want to ask a fundamental question. Why is father hunger so important? Why has it shaped an entire generation? We'll discuss this and more in this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. The Hard Men Podcast exists to reclaim biblical masculinity in a world of softness. As Doug Wilson has quite ably written in his book, Father Hunger, quote, In our generation, we are confronted with many social dislocations that all go back to a foundational father hunger. It has been well documented that what has really destroyed the black community, for example, has been the absence of genuine fatherhood. Fatherless homes produce a number of problems, including a, a rise in dependence on the welfare state, they create broken homes, and they lead to sons who aren't church. They, they don't live responsible lives, by and large, when fathers aren't present, and they are at much higher rates incarcerated. So there's violent crimes committed by them. It's not productive for these young men to lack fatherhood. So it's a catastrophic thing for society. But we're also seeing this devastating fatherlessness and the hunger that results as it impacts the broader culture and all of society. We're really seeing how divorce and broken homes are pushing fathers out of homes. All of these things, people not even having families anymore, range of problems, but they can all be traced back to father hunger. One of the key emphasis of the Hard Men podcast is helping men rebuild their households which in turn will help men rebuild Christendom. One of the key ways that I've found to do this is through family worship, which is an integral part of education within the home. A great new resource from Reformation Heritage Books is the Family Worship Bible Guide, which is definitely recommended. This is meant to go hand in hand with your Bible. The Family Worship Bible presents rich devotional thoughts, on 1,189 chapters in the Bible, including searching questions to help promote conversation and help you as a father lead in family worship in the home. This is a great resource from Reformation Heritage Books, and you can pick up your copy at heritagebooks.org. Again, that's heritagebooks.org. Great resource. You can get the hardcover for just $18, so I definitely encourage you 
to check that out. It has four editors for this book, including Dr. Joel Beakey, who has done a phenomenal job putting this together. Would definitely encourage you to check it out if you're a father, again, to help lead with family worship. This is a fantastic resource from Reformation Heritage Books. Now, as we start to unpack this, I do also want to say that Doug Wilson's Father Hunger is one of my top shelf books. I know a lot of you have asked me that. I've referred to top shelf books and people keep asking me, hey, show me a picture of what's on your top shelf. Well, I've kind of teased. It's sort of like the Bush's baked beans. It's a little bit of a secret recipe. Um, So anyway, we're going to unpack and we're going to talk about some of those things in the show, but definitely would encourage you to check out the book Father Hunger. Subtitle of that book is Why God Calls Men to Love and Lead Their Families. Really, if you listen to previous episodes, I've talked about John Eldridge and his book, Wild at Heart, which I do think has some good things in it and also has some bones to spit out. But Doug, Doug Wilson's book, I think, is more theologically sound. Um, I didn't really find in this book any bones to spit out and um, is really just a wonderful book for guys who are looking to unpack and understand what is this father hunger issue and how is it impacting uh, society. So really great book from Doug Wilson. Recommend that highly. Now, I'm not going to cover all of the book here, but I do want to start with a couple of things that Doug talks about in the introduction about father hunger. And I also want to start by reading Matthew. And this is verses 16 through 17 of chapter three. So Matthew Chapter 3, we'll read verses 16 and 17. And we get in this, this, uh, this passage really a picture of, you know, the ultimate in relation between sons and fathers. So it reads this way. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom... I am well pleased. So I want to start to ask a few questions about this passage, and this is really where we're going to camp out for a little bit. What can we learn from this passage? Doug Wilson writes, this passage, this is what fatherhood is like. This is where fatherhood reaches its ultimate expression. So at its best, this is what the father-son relationship is supposed to look like. And I am going to unpack Um, exactly why I think that is. So as Doug points out, it it really is about the presence of the father in his son's life in this passage. And I want to show this in five different ways. How did the father's presence manifest in his son's life? Well, number one, he was there, right? The father showed up, right? He was physically present. And uh, we told that, right? Woody Allen, uh, I think, uh, was the one who said, if you could just show up, that would be like 90% of the battle. And I think for many men, they're simply not there in their children's lives. And there's a number of reasons for this, which we'll unpack in just a minute. But simply being there is what the father was doing in the life of his son, Jesus. Number two, he made his presence felt. So we see that the dove is resting and bringing peace. The father is demonstrating his powerful presence in the life of his son. So his presence is, it's not just that he's there, but also that his presence is felt. Third, he laid claim to his son. It's not just that he was there. It's not just that his presence was felt, but he said something and he said a couple of things. He said, this is my son 
So there's this claim upon Jesus from the Father. He's saying, you belong to me. And he's making the world know this. It's not just that he's speaking to his son privately, but this is a public setting, a sort of coronation event, a coming of age event for Jesus at his baptism. And we see that the father is laying claim to his son. Fourth, the father is proclaiming his love. He says, this is my beloved son, right? So there's words of love here as well. It's not just that he's a son, but he's my son, and he's my beloved son. I love him. Now, fifth, he says in the passage, or at least we see that the father is expressing his pleasure. He's expressing his pleasure in the son. It is my son with whom I am well pleased. So again, an expression of pleasure over his son. So I want to unpack this and apply it for us today. So let's start with the first one, the father was there. What does this mean for us as fathers and as men? Well, first of all, we simply need to show up in our children's lives. For our sons and for our daughters, this means that we need to be present with them. Uh, I think it was Mark Driscoll uh, years ago who talked about this. He said, you really can't have quality time with your children or your wife, but let's, let's say children. As a father, you can't have quality time with your children unless you also have quantity time. Right? You simply have to create opportunities to be with your children. This is both on a daily basis and then it's also seasonal. So you have things where you go and you do things that are fun together. Maybe you go camping, maybe you go hunting, maybe you guys get away for a weekend as a family and you spend dedicated time with your children. And then again, like I said, you do this on a daily basis as well. You simply need to show up and be present. Now, what are some of the pitfalls to presence for men in today's culture? Well, I think a big one is actually smartphones and distraction, right? I'm as guilty of this as anyone. And so I need to, um, and many of us do, we need to create things like um, having times during the day, maybe it's in the evenings, where we're putting our smartphones in another room of the house in a basket, and, and we're going to the dinner table and we're having undistracted time with our kids and with our wife. We're being present be all there with your family. So, so being present, being undistracted. This also, by the way, I would say one of my pet peeves is you, you need to do this with the people you work with as well. Like don't be checking email where you, you're sitting in a meeting talking to somebody, they start talking, you start checking email, right? We have just trained ourselves to be distracted. So for fathers, be undistracted, be fully present. I, I think also... Uh, one thing I'll say here is when you tend to be overloaded and you're, you're too busy and you have too much on your plate and you, you just spend your whole day in an unfocused, like cluttered mess, like your schedule is a cluttered mess. You got too much on your schedule. What tends to happen is that you can never turn that off mentally. And so you're always in this like hyper anxious state. And so one of the things we need to do is simply set boundaries for our lives um, you know, when you, you finish your work, you, you get done, you write down what you need to do tomorrow, and then you turn your computer off, you shut it off, you make this hard stop, and you're training your mind to have a hard stop somewhere in the day too so that you can be present. So I think that's also really, really important. It's also important that we're present for certain moments. Like we want to be present for a lot of moments, daily moments, family worship moments, but especially these coming of age moments. 
Uh, I can think of times in my life where I got my Eagle Scout and my parents showed up. They were there. Um, those were really important moments. You think about uh, moments in your children's life. You know, obviously when they're baptized, that would be an easy application here. Show up to your children's baptism. But fathers need to be leading in these moments as well and making sure that they're, they're present. You're not sitting in the crowd, checking your phone, worrying about work, but you're there for your kids to be present for and with them. Again, I've seen this a lot too, uh, going back to the question of workaholism. I've known a lot of guys who are just beasts when it comes to their work and their jobs. Their employees love them. Um, they're successful multimillionaires. Uh, they do really well in the workplace and they're horrible at home. Like they're, they're, they, they got, you know, all these problems with their kids. You know, their kids are dealing with um, moral failures. Um, there's not respect and love in the relationship. And I think a, a, one of my friends, one of my acquaintances and friends that I've got to know over the years, his parents were heavily involved in ministry, even, even ministry around the world. And yet he and his siblings were literally doing drugs, getting drunk, being promiscuous. So like you, you're, you're doing something outwardly as a parent, as a father, you're saying, we need to reach the world for the lost and your own children are lost. And there just wasn't, it seems like, um, in many people's lives, a, a recognition that I need to be present for my own kids. That's my first sphere and circle of responsibility. And so I need to start there. And if that isn't right, I shouldn't move on to people in the third world because I can't even, uh, I'm not successfully leading people in my world. So I think for men, just guard against the pitfall of being, being a workaholic, uh, being super in on your career, but not being good at home. We should want to be good at home first. And that leads to, if you can order your household well, then you can order your workplace well. And that's the order that God gives us. So that was show up and be present, number one. Number two, make your presence felt. So often fathers, especially physically, we don't give our kids physical touch, hugs, uh, putting an arm around them, sitting next to them during a movie, especially uh, I've seen a lot of fathers who do a really good job with this, with their, their daughters, you know, snuggling with them, kissing their forehead. But fathers, you need to do this with sons as well. Let them know through your physical touch, comfort them, let them feel your presence with them. This is so huge and it's so lacking in so much of our culture. Um, I, I've gone to funerals in the last couple of years with, you know, older family members. So these are from like greatest generation to the boomer. And one of the things I've noticed is those generations had a really hard time showing each other physical affection. Like, you know, they're hugging each other for the first time at a funeral or, or you know, maybe like three times in their life. It, it's rare to see just affection through physical touch. And beyond this, I would also say when you say making your presence felt, not only physical touch, but fathers, we have the opportunity to give steady presence. When your family's going through trials, you can be joyful and steady and speak words of encouragement and comfort. We'll get into that in just a moment. But that is one way that your presence, just having a steady presence, this, um, you know, I'm not jumping off the cliff emotionally in front of my family. I'm not complaining. I'm not doing all these things, but I have a steady presence. And so that's something that people feel as well. Um, I always notice this when, when I go away, my wife will tell me, she said, when you're gone, there's like a heightened anxiety uh, for me and for the household. 
And so that's, that's one clue to say, okay, so despite failures, one thing that, that I'm doing well and that we should do well as men is to bring a steady presence. You should make your family, your, your protection and provision should make them feel safe, comfortable, et cetera. So that's something that they can actually tangibly feel when you're around. So men, I would ask you, um, just on these first two points, number one, are you present, like physically actually present with your family? And you know, are you actually just spending time with them? Are you distracted? If you are take an inventory of your life, how often ask your wife, how often am I staring at my phone is not listening to you? Do you feel like I give the kids my full attention? Um, see what the people in your family think and then make adjustments, repent if you need to do that. And then making your presence felt, you can actually just, again, you can ask, you can get their input, but d- are you creating an environment that's stable? Or, and I've seen many men do this as well, like if there's not drama, you create drama. Are you a drama creator? Are you the guy that up-transforms a situation and a tense situation you make worse? Or are you the kind of guy that provides stability and steadfastness in the home? And again, you can ask your wife especially, what, what do you think about this? Am I, am I doing a good job being a steady presence? Can you feel my presence when I'm here? When I get home from work, what happens to the home? Does it get more steady? Um, does my bringing of discipline bring order to the household or am I an agent of chaos in my own home? And if we're honest, men, we can sometimes be both. Uh, I know as fathers, you know, don't exasperate your children. Sometimes I come home and I got a little excess energy. And so I'm like, I'm going to, I'm just going to rile my kids up. You know, I've sometimes done this at bedtime. The kids are supposed to go to bed and I'm like, let's wrestle. And they get all riled up and my wife will shoot me that look like now they're riled up before bed. What were you thinking? So picking time and place again uh, to engage with your children in the right way. Number three, speak to your children often. We see the father in the passage in Matthew 3 laying claim to his sons. They belong to me. Let your sons and daughters hear others as you tell them, like, you belong to me. That's my boy. That's my daughter. That's my girl. I am proud of her. And I think this is especially important for men because so often this this is really what gave rise to the John Eldridge promise keepers Um, I think that phenomenon was you had a generation of guys who had literally never heard any positive words of affirmation from uh, their parents and particularly their fathers. Girls who had never heard their dad say, I love you. You are beautiful. I'm so proud of you. Right. This, this belonging, you belong to me. That can be such a powerful thing to speak words of life over somebody. So fathers, you have the opportunity to do this for your children. And I would encourage you too, if you're older fathers and you haven't done this, there is, t- you, as long as you're alive, there's time to repent. And, and you can even say to your children, you know, I, I wish I would have shown you more affection and spoken more words of love to you, right? I wish I would have criticized less and I would have laid claim to you. That's my boy. I'm proud of him. Show them, but also speak. So speak to them, lay claim. And then number four, proclaim love. This gets to the spoken word about your children as well. Again, so often as fathers, we withhold affection. It's hard for us. You know, I, I feel this all the time. Like I, I know that I need to make a habit of telling my kids that I love them, telling them how much I appreciate them. But what do we tend to do? We tend to withhold affection. I don't know what it is about men, but we put our nose to the grindstone. We work. And, you know, there's days where all I do is basically kind of bark orders at my kids and 
go do this. Stop doing that. All right, let's go do the next thing. And, and I never stop and say, you know, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I'm, I'm so proud of the way that you're learning. I'm so proud of your faith. I'm so proud of your faithfulness and the things that you've been given to do, right? We, we can easily miss those things. And so make a habit of proclaiming your love and your affection to your children. Do they know, right? There's a, a joke we've watched in the past uh, years, a Ninjago movie, and uh, Lloyd or Lloyd is estranged from his father. And um, he, he doesn't know how to throw a Lego brick, right? So think of a, a son growing up without his father. And he says, you know, he's trying to encourage his estranged son to throw the Lego brick. And he says, throw the brick like no one's watching except your very judgy father. Right. And so it's kind of humorous, but at the same time, we can understand how that works in fatherhood, right? We're not showing affection. We're not showing encouragement, but we're often just uh, critical. So fathers don't withhold your affection. And then finally, express your pleasure. Express your pleasure in your sons. Again, this gets to the pitfall of being highly critical Uh, For me, always talking to my sons about the things I'm annoyed with, you know, stop doing that. Stop hitting your brother. You listen to this all day and you hear the, the, you know, the, uh, he's looking at me wrong. So I slugged him, you know, or my brother hit me and I did nothing wrong. And then you get the other side of the story. So you deal with those situations. I think what you can forget is to express pleasure in your children. This is my beloved son with whom I am well-pleased. I also think, and what I want to say finally about this passage, we, we see this in John's gospel as well, but the father has extended to his son work and the son has joined the father in that work. And so whatever I see my father doing, that's what I'm doing. Whatever I've received as a message, that's what I'm speaking. So the heart of the father and son are turned toward each other. There's a, by the way, a gospel new covenant promise, but they're turned toward each other because they're engaged in the same vocation and work. And so the last thing I will say is that fathers, you need to extend your mission to your children. Be calling them in a Proverbs way. Son, give me your heart. Join me in my mission and my work. Help me to build this legacy. Help me in my real physical, actual work of building this household. Call your sons to be a part of that work. And then as you are, you can imagine this, right? If you're passing on an inheritance and in the midst of that, your, your sons feel loved they hear it continually, they feel the goodness of your presence, then it would be natural for them to want to join you in that work. So again, just, just to recap, fathers show up, be present, make your presence felt, speak in love, proclaim your love and lay claim to your sons and express pleasure over them. Here's the reality. Father wounds can leave incredible scars. Many of us have them. Absent fathers, hurting fathers, we've across culture experienced just a a wide range of problems with fatherhood. Many of us got basically the opposite of what we see in Matthew chapter three. In fact, our fathers maybe said things to us that were incredibly damaging and hurtful. You can think of what James senior said to his son, Michael, at an early age, just go be with your mother. You're worthless, right? It's the opposite of what we see in Matthew three. And it clearly shaped the trajectory of Michael's life. Again, as I mentioned before, this is where John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, really resonated with men, particularly the boomer 
and then generations following that. So boomer Gen X, they really felt a lot of the reality of that. And I would say even millennials uh, can often identify with this. Once you start to see these father wounds and think about them, and you read Doug Wilson's book, Father Hunger, you start to see it's everywhere. I noticed this recently when I was talking to uh, just a wide swath of different people from you know church to work encounters and realizing how deep it has affected people to not have fathers. You know, somebody's going through an emotional trial. Um, you're having late night scotch with them and you're like, hey man, tell me about your life. And, and, and they start to tell you some of the hardship and affliction. And sure enough, like deep down at the center is something with the father. You know, a father who was absent, a father who died early, a father who said hurtful things, whatever it is. And uh, so this is serious. It's a, it's a real thing. It's a real phenomenon. So I would encourage people, if, you, if you're the kind of guy who can read a book or gal and you can spit out the bones and you can think critically, then I would recommend Wild at Heart. Um, if you're less inclined to do that, uh, I would encourage Father Hunger. I, I recently, I was telling a friend this, but I recently started reading a book that my wife picked up at the library and it's called Iron John, a book about men. It's by Robert Bly. And if you don't know this, Robert Bly is really where John Eldridge gets a lot of his material. So I started reading uh, Iron John, and it, it was immediately apparent that it, father wounds and you know all this stuff. It's this is literally this is where John Eldridge got everything. Here would be my main concern with it. Robert Bly's book is just filled with Freudian, Jungian, anti-Christian nonsense. Um, and and I'm not saying that John Eldridge is believes all of that. But, but listen, when you read Jordan Peterson, who's a huge purveyor and fan of Carl Jung, you know, you see it written, it's J-U-N-G, but it's pronounced Jung, um, and Freud, who did have disagreements. But, but this brand of psychology is pretty vehemently anti-Christian. So it is something that you have to read with intense discernment. All that being said, there, there are a few good things in Iron John. And, and one of them is this kind of understanding that Men have to go through somewhat of a journey to overcome uh, being a feminized and to really lay hold of their masculine calling. So that's, that part is true. And he, he points out that every man seems to sort of have a father wound because the reality is none of us are perfect fathers. Um, I know about these things and I want to be a Matthew 3 father and yet I've failed and I've sinned against my children. I've said harsh things. And so I, I would just encourage guys um, to be in the process of repenting about those things. It, it really is important. These, again, these father wounds do really exist. So I'm going to give just in closing a few practical things. First would be fathers. Uh, if you've left wounds in your children's lives, then seek forgiveness, first of all, with your sons. Right? Again, the gospel says that hearts of fathers and sons will be turned back to each other. So we can start, if we believe the gospel, we can start here restoring relationships with fathers and sons. If, if you've caused hurt in your son or daughter's life, I'm using sons as children here. If you've caused wounds in their lives, then seek their forgiveness. Say that you were wrong, apologize, be humble, be repentant. And then secondly, you know, seek restoration in those things, right? If you've done damage, then restore it. Don't just say that you're sorry, but show your repentance by the way you're willing to work to restore what has been broken. This, this is huge and critical. I would say with a lot of older parents as well, you know, a lot of things that I've seen in counseling 
is when you go to deal, you know, kids, kids who are hurt, so like, okay, encourage them to talk to their parents. A lot of parents just won't hear it. You know, well, we did the best we we could. I don't want to hear it because they don't really want to repent. Deep down, there's shame and guilt about being a bad father, bad mother, and they don't really want to repent. But I would just encourage fathers, just repent fully, wholeheartedly. That's where restoration for your relationship is going to come from. So if you've been critical, if you've been harsh, if you're estranged from your children, then make, make your life about repenting. Start here. Do this hard work. If you, again, if you're estranged, then, then seek not to be. You know, Restore relationships. Seek out your children. And then I would say for sons. Sons, if you've, if you've received a wound, then forgive. Because the bitterness is only going to destroy you. Like you're holding on to the unforgiveness and it just makes you worse. So if you've received a wound from your father, forgive. You also need to seek restoration as much as you can. And this, again, can be difficult because I think a lot of people in the older generation, by the time that you're like 70 and you've been living a certain way for a long time, it's really hard to repent, right? Especially if you never have. And this is what I see a lot. And so kids will go to their, you know, their parents, their father, and they'll try to work through these issues. And fathers can just be turds. And, uh, I, it, and I, I've seen this in, in so many situations. So I would say to sons, look, you, you need to seek restoration as much as you can. And then from that point, we also need to embrace adoption. And what I mean by that is we've been adopted by God into the family of God. We're told this in Ephesians and in Romans. This is a huge, important doctrine for us to study and wrap our minds and hearts around that we have been adopted. And so this affects not only our relationship with God, but it also affects that we now have fathers in the church to call our own. And, you know, men in the church, I would say, especially be on the lookout for other young men who, like the chances of them having a good father relationship in our culture and society today, it's more likely that they didn't have it. So look for those sons, seek to encourage them, seek to be fathers in the faith. Paul was to his churches. And remember the promise of the gospel that Jesus said he will not leave us as orphans. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Hope it's been a blessing to you. Hope it's been an encouragement. Again, we'll have in the show notes some of the resources we've talked about, including Father Hunger by Douglas Wilson. I definitely would encourage you, if you get a chance, go to iTunes or Spotify, leave a five-star review, and tell us a little bit about the show. That definitely helps us expand our reach and get out there to more and more people. I would also encourage you to go over to Patreon and support the show. Making good Christian content is time-consuming, it's expensive, and if you want to see more of it, we encourage you definitely vote with your dollars. Special thank you to everyone who is a supporter of the show. You have been tremendously wonderful and blessing me and my family and seeing that this work goes out, so we're glad to share the joy of that with you. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight like men.